Are we recording? <laughs> oh yeah! It's like <laughs> a year from now. <laughs> Macho. Oh man, that's Vincy. I like that my kids know that I'm healthy and strong and fit, and that their mom is healthy and strong and fit. Going, okay, I can still get better without having to do a max effort every single day. Smashing yourself on the roller for uh, an hour, right? you're good by the next day, as long as you had a sandwich and a net. So on today's episode, we will be discussing, um, well, sorry, we will be continuing our discussion of the psychobiological model. Uh, this episode will mainly focus on uh, effort and the sense of effort. We've decided that uh, the first bit of the podcast, I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs uh, from, a, from a section in a book called um, Endurance, Performance, and Sport, Psychological Theory and, Intervent- and Interventions. It says edited by Carla Majan. Anyway, um, the reason I'm going to pick this is because there's, in the second chapter of this book uh, called, called Psychobio- Psychobiology of Fatigue, there's, um, it's which written by Samuel Marcora, there's a really good uh, couple of paragraphs that are very clear um, in what we're trying to discuss, and I don't, I don't know that we could say it any clearer or more clearly uh, than him, so I'll read that section here. The first basic principle of the psychobiological model is to consider endurance performance as a goal-directed behavior rather than just the output of a biological engine that transforms chemical energy into mechanical energy. The theoretical consequence of this approach is that endurance performance should be explained by psychology, the scientific study of the human mind and behavior. Indeed, at the first level of explanation, the psychobiological model includes only psychological constructs. Um, and those would be perception of effort and potential motivation. To explain for how long an individual can sustain endurance exercise at a given velocity or power. This is the psychological level of the explanation. The second basic principle of the psychobiological model is that the mind emerges from lower level neurobiological processes in the brain. Therefore, the psychobiological model includes neurophysiology and neuroanatomical correlates and other biological aspects of the psychological constructs that determine endurance performance at the psychological level of explanation. So, the second paragraph is not quite as clear, but either way, <laughs> the main idea is that, um, which you heard in the first paragraph, the two big things which we're going to cover in the next two podcasts is about effort and motivation and how this is going to impact uh, or can impact someone's endurance performance or someone's performance in, um, well, in his opinion, almost anything you're going to do. So uh, one of the contentions of, or actually one of the main, um, yeah, one of the main contentions of by, by Mark Hoare of his theory is that he contends that anything that will increase or anything that will decrease your the individual sense of effort relative to a task should therefore increase or decrease um, the individual's performance on that task. And do we want to give an example on what that would be? Just a really yeah, I think simple example. A simple, simple example of uh, decreasing someone's RPE would be with training. So, for example, you do uh, a 2K row and you're able to hold a two-minute pace for 500 meters, and then after uh, a block of training or a few blocks of training, your cardiovascular system improves, your ability to deliver and utilize oxygen improves, 
and you retest at 2K row, uh, your your effort of, at holding that two minute per 500 meter pace is gonna feel much easier than it did three months prior before you did all that training specifically for that that task. That'd be one way of decreasing RPE to increase your performance on, on a specific task. Yeah, and we'll cover more of those variables at the end, um, but that that's a very that's a very common example, right? I got fitter, and then for me to go with the same pace as before felt easier. Correct. Um, and again, his contention is that if you're a, if you're performing the same pace and it feels easier, you can go faster, um, or you should be able to hold that pace for longer, and and not and only worrying about how it feels. That's that's really what it is. If you're in terms of you're not going to rate it, so. Um, and that's where we get into like the, what RPE is. So our RPE is, is, are the ratings of perceived exertion. Um, most commonly it's just in terms of the Borg scale, that's where it started. So a 15 point scale of uh, perception of effort or RPE. Um, ranging from six, where six means no exertion at all, and 20 being a maximal exertion. And there's wording goes along with that. So like six to seven is like very easy or something. And then 10 is like, I don't know, I can't remember, somewhat hard. And then like 18 is very hard, 19 is very, very hard, 20 is like dead, I think, or max, sorry, maximum <laughs> exertion, <laughs> gonna die. Um, yeah, okay. And then some of the other things to go along with that, so what is RPE? Uh, and Marcora defines it as, um, is known as a sense or sense of effort, is the conscious sensation uh, of the effort exerted to perform a physical task and its intensity is commonly measured using scales by Borg. Uh, another aspect he mentions is overall perception of effort has two main components that can be measured separately. The conscious sensation of how hard one is driving the locomotor muscles, so the legs or the arms or whatever, uh, and the conscious sensation of how heavily one is breathing, a type of dyspnea called respiratory effort or exertional dyspnea. And then the next part, which is quite important as well, to clarify what RPE is, uh, Perception of effort should not be confused with discomfort or other conscious sensations experienced during exercise, such as muscle pain and thermal sensation. So uh, pain, sense of pain, uh, we're not covering that in these, in these podcasts. Um, there are parts where Marcora makes, makes clear and uh, actually some of his fellow, uh, I guess, kind of critiquers make clear that they're not entirely sure how pain and effort work with each other in terms of how they maybe can make each other feel a little worse in those variables um, but they're separate things they're neurologically separate uh, and they're observed and they're separate subjectively as well because you can measure them separately and knowingly you can measure them separately um, okay and then what else did we have to cover so the statement anything increases or decreases RPE will therefore increase or decrease task performance RPE uh, we define that um, and the next really important part of uh, RPE or sense of effort um, is the consideration which uh, is actually I'm not sure if it's unique to Marcora I know there's other people that discuss this um, but it was the first time I'd, I came across this was reading his work and then reading uh, the work of Roger Inoka um, and it's 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 the idea where uh, the sense of effort is brain derived uh, meaning that it's a feed-forward system from areas of the brain to another area of the brain. We're not going to get any farther into it than that. Um, but the main difference being that your legs aren't driving your RPE. The idea being your brain driving the legs is what's driving your RPE. 
Okay, that's quite a different idea. Um, and the thing they the uh, the model they use to discuss this is called the corollary discharge model. And if you really want to look that up, <laughs> we can uh, just shoot us an email, and I'm sure we can hit you up with that. Any comments thus far? No. Okay. So really, all we did thus far is just define kind of what things are uh, and what it isn't. So again, just to reiterate that point, our effort is not pain. Okay. So when we discuss the stuff moving forward, we're not talking about pain and sense of pain. There's other research for that. So one of the most important, uh, well, the most important thing is the initial statement we made. And again, is anything that increases or decreases RPE should therefore increase or decrease, decrease task performance. That's what this model is based on. That's what he does his research based on. Um, so as Scott mentioned earlier, one of the physiological manipulations uh, that you could do to, to, to adjust your sense of effort. And we're just going to, again, I think, did you say two minutes per 500 meters in the rower? Mm -hmm. That's the example Scott used to just, if, uh, yeah, so for most guys, that'd be really easy to go at. Uh, for girls, maybe just think 215 per 500 meters in the rower. And just kind of think of that, uh, just use that as your metric of what we're going to use to discuss. Because we're just going to have that one, that one intensity in mind. And then we're going to discuss these variables and how these variables would uh, can therefore manipulate how your sense of effort changes relative again to that same pace because we can't we got to keep it really simple and think about one specific effort or one specific intensity I should say so Scott mentioned first uh, what's a physiological manipulation that can change your sense of effort relative to that same pace is you get fitter right like you become more fit you become more efficient things get easier relative to that same pace Yep. Any other examples you want to give on that one? For physically changing things? Oh, no, just with regards to the fitness aspect. Like maybe, again, like for me, an example I can give is running. Um, and as I've become fitter, running at 70% of my max heart rate, the pace I run at that same, uh, well, I measure intensity in terms of heart rate is the same, is gotten way faster, sorry. So from last year, my 70% max heart rate Actually, in, and even the beginning of this year as well, when I was just first starting to ramp up my running volume, it would be about six minutes per kilometer. That's what it would be. And now it's like five minutes to 20 seconds per kilometer. And perceptually, they feel the same. They feel the same. Like when I think about them, when I look at my notes, when I write down, it just feels better. So if I was to run at six minutes, it would feel like I'm sleeping now. Like that's, that, that's what happens. So as I become more efficient and fitter, for me to run that previous pace, my sense of effort would likely be even lower than it was, even though I was running really slowly. Uh, how I think of it is doing something like Fran the first time versus the fourth or fifth time after you've been training for a while. In the beginning, maybe you had to break up your sets, but as you get fitter, you feel more comfortable going unbroken or going faster on thrusters, etc. So, movement economy approves contractile intensity or your 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 ability to sustain contractions improves you know your cardiovascular system obviously is improved right so then your ability like i mentioned earlier to deliver and utilize oxygen improves because of all those factors right yeah um so there's a lot that goes into the the changes physiologically that make the rp drop yeah and so why, again why that would affect rpe right is again the idea of the just think of it really simply as how hard the brain has to work to drive the body to do the work you're actually asking it to do. So again, if like like Tom said or Scott mentioned, if you if you become more efficient at performing the movements within Fran, 
your brain should should have to work less hard to drive the body to do that work. And if the brain is where sense of effort is derived, and it's derived gen like it's not linear, but it's, if it's derived sort of linearly in terms of how much how much effort it has to, or how much activation there has to be to drive the body to do the work, if there's less, there should be a lower sense of effort. There's a lot that goes into that, but that's ba that's one of the really general ideas behind this thing. Um, so that would be one. Another another physiological thing you could do to to make to adjust your sense of effort with a certain task is make sure you eat right. <laughs> it's really simple. Um, like if you're running, if if you do lots of endurance training, or if you do CrossFit, that's an endurance sport. Um, if you don't eat a lot of carbohydrates, generally it's gonna it can easily drive up your sense of effort. Um, and if you currently don't, if you never eat carbohydrates, then you may say that that's not correct. But all you have to do is generally start eating carbohydrates, and you'll like, wow, that felt a lot different. Um, so the like the way you want to think of it is that the nutrition is adjusting your sense of effort relative to the task, which is showing you that it's working, and that's the point. And one of the contentious points here is that if it doesn't adjust your sense of effort relative to the task, it's not doing anything. Okay, so that's one of the really important aspects of this. So if you obsess about your nutrition, even though you're doing it better but it's making you crazy, it's not helping you. And that, that's one of the really contentious aspects of that. Well, that goes into mental fatigue, which is different, <laughs> very different. Not a physiological thing anymore. You can, <laughs> you can start taking the nutrition thing over to the psychological aspect. <clears throat> um, okay, obvious things like neuromuscular fatigue. So if you go to do um, like your 10th set of, <laughs> of 500 meter rows or something versus the first one or the second one, uh, your sense of effort for the last one, even if you're going the same pace and you're taking adequate rest, will probably be a little bit higher than the previous ones because you're incurring a little bit of neuromuscular fatigue each time. So again, the same the idea is the brain has to work a little harder to perform that tenth set than the first set, and that that's really as simple as you need to think of it. Uh, another thing in here that can easily drive RPE up, which he said is not our, is, is what you want to disconnect, is the sense of like thermal temperature, your heat. But as your body temperature increases, you'll easily have an increase in your RPE at a set workload. If you don't believe me, just row like uh, row just under your 2K PR pace uh, in a in a nice nice condition <laughs> air cool uh, garage or building, and then take it outside in the sun and when it's really hot, and have at it and let's see what it's like. You might be one of those really really unique people, but most people would not enjoy that whatsoever, and it's noticeably much different. And there's physiological reasons for that. Um, another one, which actually should I put down in the psychological cat or physiological category, but uh, it's kind of kind of sort of is. But um, one of the popular things that they did, one of their popular studies, was they did on brain endurance training. Um, so they literally have people do these incongruent tasks, which means like a, it's like a Stroop task. So if you don't know what that means, you like it could be something simple like um, like there's words coming down the computer screen. Uh, and you have to select if the word it matches or it doesn't match. So you'd have like the word yellow come down and it would be in yellow font. So if you don't touch that one, it makes sense. But the next one could say the word red, but it's in blue font, but you got to hit that one. So you can imagine what that does. Um, <laughs> yeah, for like, yeah, so it's kind of interesting, right? They do that for what they call brain endurance training, um, but they also do that to induce mental fatigue, the same types of stuff, right? 
anyway, but the, the 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 small amount of research they've done and that has showed promise in that um, even between groups where you have the same again really really simple studies, uh, you have the same increases uh, in VO two max things what they measure, and then like fractional utilization of VO two uh, at certain cadences on the bike. The group who did the, the brain endurance training uh, was able to do better on the subsequent time to exhaustion task. And uh, the thinking there is that you're just improving the in, individual's uh, the, the individual's ability uh, to stay engaged in the task and to not get fatigued from the effort and not want to disengage or 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 what is called like you're increasing response inhibition. So it's kind of an interesting little thing. Um, so the psychological manipulations are much more plentiful. One uh, Jason mentioned was mental fatigue. So uh, really common studies that they do, uh, there's numerous ones of these where, what like I was just saying, they have people do these uh, incongruent tasks, so like a Stroop task or something like that, for anywhere between 30, 60, 90 minutes. They try to induce some level of mental fatigue uh, in the subjects, and they usually rate themselves before they start the event. And it's usually some type of time to exhaustion test on a treadmill, uh, or it's a self-paced thing on a treadmill or a cycle ergometer, something like that. So they induce this mental fatigue um, in individuals, and then before they even start the task, they just measure. Their, they ask people their RPE, and it's just generally higher. It's higher in the group at the starting point. Um, sorry, it's it's high. Like the start of the task is higher in the group that has done the mental fatigue prior than the other group. Um, and then generally the people where the where it starts at a higher RPE, they, they finish the test, uh, sorry, they don't go as fast or they stop sooner. Um, and that's just, it's a really simple idea where if you start with IP, or the RPE higher at the beginning of the task, you're going to end sooner. That's really that simple. Uh, another, <laughs> another way to, another, I, I guess, adjacent aspect of mental fatigue is sleep. So if you don't sleep a lot, uh, you're going to artificially increase your sense of effort. And I'm sure Scott could uh, maybe tell us a little bit about lack of sleep as well. As I'm sure you could too. But yeah, I mean, you uh, if you have one one night of bad sleep, it's it's likely not going to impact your training too much. But then you string together two weeks, three weeks, six years <laughs> <laughs> of insufficient sleep, um, then that that plays a role in one, like Mike just said, increasing your or artificially increasing your rate of perceived exertion before you start a task, and then obviously hindering your performance to complete that said task. Right? You're just you're not going to allow yourself to go as hard as far because it's going to feel too hard, way faster than it would if you were well rested, and your RPE was where it should be if you were well rested before you started that task. Mm-hmm. Right? And then another aspect of the mental fatigue thing, which there be there be mental, or sorry, there be multiple. Um, which I th- we thought to mention um, was a concept of called a mental taper, so which would be important to do before uh, an important event or important competition, whatever you could do to reduce the mental stress and strain of your life should therefore immediately and likely have a positive impact on your performance simply because you're reducing the cognitive load over the course of a week or two weeks. Uh, and most people talk like think think of tapers mostly in terms of physical, which it is, but uh, like when you're training, training is also has a cognitive load to it because you have to work and you have to you have to put out effort. So by reducing the workload, you're also reducing the the mental load. Sorry, yeah, we're reducing the physical workload. You reduce the psychological workload as well. Um, but when they usually talk about mental tapers, they're talking about like make sure you sleep really well, 
you try to remove as much re- like relationship stress from your life as you can. Uh, like don't do social media or don't engage in things that really get you ang- like anxious or revved up. So like don't go on Twitter or <laughs> any of that stuff. Don't get to any, don't get in any Facebook fights. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't watch, yeah. Watch, don't watch presidential debates. <laughs> that's fu- yeah, that's funny. Yeah, and just that type of stuff. So if, whatever you can do to remove that aspect from your training leading into a competition would would likely be helpful, and that's considered a mental taper. Did you have a comment, Jay? Uh, I just like to maybe differentiate between like an acute bout of not sleeping versus chronic not yeah. sleeping because everyone who has competed has known like you can go into a competition the night before you don't get a very good night's sleep you likely probably yeah, yeah. especially and, if it's a three-day event yeah and you're at some point you're you're still rocking it because you don't your mo- motivation is extremely high mm-hmm. versus if you're training week in and week out and you're getting five to six nights uh, hours per night that's a very very different impact on how you feel and how your recovery and so uh, losing one night of sleep is can if you're in the middle of a training session mm-hmm. and you're not mo- highly motivated can have a massive impact on your RPE. But if it is like right before a competition, sh- may not. Yeah, so the, the, there's a difference between the psychological impact of it and the physiological impact of. Yeah. It. Do you have any experience with that with sleep and uh, and uh, um and comp- and competing? Not very elaborate, but. It's simply, yeah, like say Can West last year. I don't think I slept at all, but then after the first day, I felt comfortable with how it turned out, and then I was able to sleep forward. But um, Kendra even said like two weeks leading up to it, she called me a mental case, and she felt uncomfortable even approaching the topic because I was so quiet about everything and didn't talk about life stuff, nothing. I was just so focused on the competition and talking about the events and who was going to be there and that sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, that first night I usually only sleep like six hours and I probably woke up three times. <laughs> yeah. Like the, again, the, we don't want, we don't want to go too far into this, but the, like if the question I asked people and I believe it was on Mike Castelli's podcast, um, was you have to like, um, how many gold medals have been won on a bad night's sleep? <laughs> yeah. And then the adjacent question is how many gold medals have been won on poor nutrition? How many CrossFit Games champions have there been on subadequate nutrition? Um, and yeah, it's just the uncomfortable thing is that I just, I personally don't believe it's the most proximate variable to success. It's very important, but it's not the most important. Um, okay, and then some other aspects of psychological manipulations, like classic studies of placebos. Uh, Alex Hutchinson uh, wrote the book Endure. He tells a really interesting story of the first time I believe he broke four minutes in the 1500. And it was uh, it was at an event um, where he said he didn't feel like he was going to win or doing that great. But after the first first lap or maybe the second lap, um, I think the announcer that was announcing the lap times kind of got it wrong. So uh, I believe they said that he was going faster than he was, but. Uh, in actuality, I think he was just running his normal pace, but they said that he was ahead of his pace. And then he, he's like, I was thinking, man, I, this is easy. Like I can go for it. I'm going faster than I ever have. I can go for it. And he ended up, he says he ended up running his best, uh, best time, uh, in the 1500. And so he broke four minutes, but then he also, which the interesting thing, part of that, he said he never had a problem breaking four minutes ever again after that in, during his track career. Other interesting things to do with that, um, 
is uh, why can't I think of his name? Who's Elliot? the guy? Not Elliot. No, who's who's the uh, Roger Bannister? The story of Bannister like illegally Ooh. running the sixteen hundred with uh, someone in front of him to pace him, um, which you can't do. You can't have someone to draft off. You can't have someone like skip a lap and then pace you for the next couple laps. <laughs> That's illegal. But the story was that it'll, it gave him the idea that he could do it. So even though it was kind of fake, um, because you can't do that, he ended up subsequently obviously running um, a sub four minute mile. And uh, yeah, and then what? Yeah, what were you gonna say about Elliot? Well, he, oh yeah, because Elliot was doing again he, with the sub two uh, project, sub two. I think it was called sub two project. Mm-hmm. Oh, breaking two. That's right, <laughs> breaking to sub two. Breaking two. Yeah, they had all these weird, wacky things uh, done up that Nike had designed. They had all their science, uh, and enge- they had all their scientists, engineers there to figure out like wind and drafting and how far the car should be away and where they're gonna run the race and. So it was a whole bunch of, of things that are not normal to a marathon. Um, but again, for him, again, what he, again, if you talk to Elliot, which I was talking to him yesterday. Um, <laughs> that's not true. Um, what he says is that it just, it gave him the belief that he could do it. And that was enough for him, right? So that's what I mean by kind of placebos. And there's lots of other stuff where people are lying to you, like how much weight is on a bar. Uh, and you know yourself, like there's a great story with Alex. Well, actually, Alex can't say that because she ended up finding out what how much weight was on the bar for the snatch in the 2015 uh, regionals like a second before she did it so like she was aware um but there's lots of times like that people just load the bar wrong and they don't even know um and either in up or down if you believe it's heavier it, you'll probably it'll probably be heavier if you believe it's lighter it'll probably be lighter there's lots of little things like that right um uh, there, and there's obvious uh, psychological disciplines related to like psychological skills training, um, which can affect and and help individuals deal with like the sense of effort associated with endurance performance and maximal effort. So like motivational self-talk is one thing, um, and which Tom Tom alluded to initially with Fran, like the generally the idea of doing an, a novel task and then doing it again and doing it again, it becomes less novel. So you develop experience. Right, and you can then you frame things from that experience. You also develop coping strategies uh, for when you're in those experiences, and then you have the previous experience to draw on, knowing what's going to happen next. So then that can that'll change your your own like uh, your understanding and your dialogue with that sense of effort you have. Whereas if you don't have that experience, you might be really weary of the effort. But if you do have the experience, you might be less weary of the effort, going, "This is okay. This is okay. I know I can hold on to this pace. I know I can because I've done it eight times before." Versus the first time, you're like, I don't know if I can hold on to this pace. I don't know, right? So you're just kind of flying into the dark type thing. That's what I would mean by that. Um, yeah, and then the the last one, which I read yesterday on Twitter, Marcor is going to go into more research on this for runners and something with smiling, <laughs> which is the idea of facial expression and just generally being happy um, or, or feeling good, I guess. Um, can have an can have an impact on how well you perform and then your in the overall sense of effort you have relative to a task and you just got to put yourself in situations like again just think back to those paces we said you row at two minutes for 500 for a guy for an hour uh and a girl you row at 215 for 500 for an hour if you're in a really shitty situation a circumstance like you've just had some really bad news whatever like you're just not feeling too hot, you didn't sleep well, you add all those things up and now go row for the hour. You already know what's gonna happen. You're gonna get five minutes in and be like, I don't wanna do this at all. Versus the other one, you're sitting around with, you're, you're literally rowing in a group of 10 
and you're just chatting to each other the whole time and it's like the greatest thing ever you don't even notice you're doing it you don't you literally don't even notice you're doing it you're like this is not not that hard at all right it just isn't um yeah any other comments on those two things the psych physiological psychological constructs of that or things that could affect rpe i I think they compound pretty quickly like it's not like you're ever competing with one exactly which is a great point right you're never dealing with just one of these things like we're just dealing with the nutrition one today but i'm (laughs) but but the visit the fitness thing isn't a thing no these these all work together all the time um, these are just things that can uh, affect your sense of effort relative to a certain pace. Okay, um, yeah, and one and one of the one of the thing one of, one of the things that's obvious to almost anyone is that if you compete in anything, uh, or even if you don't compete, you're sent you, you you know how you feel when you're performing, and you're referencing your pacing off that and how things feel, how things feel. You're never going to know how things actually are. Like in, when I when I say think how things actually are, you're never going to know how the how the actual body is actually functioning when you're doing these things. Not until they come up with you wearing some suit that measures everything upside down. Um, you're you're not going to know. So the only thing you have to go on, which is generally a really good representation of how your body is doing, is your sense of effort. It really is. Uh, and actually, one of the things I wanted to mention were uh, another little story with uh, Marcora was. When Jason said um, uh, just about sleeping, if, or or if you're going to a if you're if you're showing up to work out in the evening in the afternoon, you're like I don't feel that great today. I feel like I might go home. Um, one of the one of the things he discusses, Marcora does, with regards to his previous training on brain endurance training, is like periodically you want to use that. You like you don't want to do it habitually, like always be feeling like dog shit in training. <laughs> That's not a good idea. But periodically, if you feel really bad. Uh, it, it's not a bad idea to push yourself really hard during those times because that gives you experience with training under a really high cognitive load. Um, and one of, the, one, of the, one of the real ideas behind brain insurance training that he wants to see if it comes to fruition for some people is for individuals that already have a maximal level of training volume, you, you, uh, you don't really want to add more physical load to their bodies. So is there possible ways to add cognitive load to them so that that's not gonna that's likely not gonna change their injury status, right? So if you're if you're like I don't we can't do another ten sets of squats per week to get your legs to work, or whatever, or we can't do like another ten miles of running because we're we're worried we're gonna overdo it here, or for some individuals that just can't tolerate a lot of work volume, right? They're just like well, I, this person can't train more than five days a week, or whatever for whatever reason, like maybe <laughs> maybe doing these little um, like they're gonna come up with an app for this, but maybe doing some form of of brain endurance training whatever that ends up being could potentially help right it's a way of training the brain without having to use the body as the method of training it okay but one of the last thing here um before we summarize it is that the one thing again markor is always really uh, clear about uh, is that this is this is not just a psychological theory which we initially which we read out it's a blend of them Right? There's a psychological level of explanation for performance and there's, a, um, and there's a physiological explanation for performance. This is not just a psychological theory of how things work. His idea is that it blends the two together. Um, and in my opinion, it blends them pretty elegantly. Um, I, do th- I, I personally do think there are some issues, which he obviously um, would probably be open to mentioning. There are some limitations. We'll cover that in the last episode. 
Um, before we clue up, is there anything else we need to mention? Maybe, maybe mentioning that we also don't think you should focus on all these individual aspects and try to control all of them <laughs> because you will also make yourself crazy trying to do that. Yeah. But just understanding that there is elements that can affect how hard you're willing to work and then realizing that if you have some weird thing like uh, you like to listen to a certain song or wear certain clothes that that's okay because if it makes you feel good and perform better then that is all that matters mm -hmm. yeah yeah likely yeah and, th and there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of other things to discuss with this and i don't we're not going to get any any deeper into that uh, so to summarize the contention is that anything that increases or decreases the individual's sense of effort should therefore increase or decrease their performance on that task um, perception of effort is a feed-forward brain-derived system uh, and not to be confused with pain effort is not pain um, and there's many physiological and psychological constructs or manipulations uh, that can affect the individual's sense of effort relative to a task thanks for tuning in if you like the episode and know someone else that will please share it with them as it helps to grow our reach. If you haven't done so already, please leave us a review wherever you listen. For questions about topics covered on the show or topics we haven't covered yet, send those questions to spiraloutpodcast at gmail.com. We do read the emails and have some topics that were submitted by listeners and we plan to cover them in the near future. You can follow at optimum underscore performance underscore training on Instagram to find out when new episodes are available. And last but not least, if you guys are in Calgary, come by and check out the gym. We offer individual design as well as personal training for those close by. If you live far, head over to OptimumPerformanceCalgary.com to get information on remote coaching and athlete camps. Catch you guys in two weeks.